This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How you doing, sir? Good. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? Very well, thank you, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Today our guest is one of the world's most sought-after drummers and producers, Jerry Murata. In 1975, Jerry auditioned for a Woodstock, New York-based group called Orleans and got the job as soon, uh, soon after and played on the band's first big hit, Still the One, still a big song. In 1977, Jerry flew to London and started working with ex-Genesis lead singer Peter Gabriel and can be heard playing on over 10 albums by Gabriel and on amazing classic songs such as Red Rain, Shock the Monkey in Your Eyes, and many, many more. Throughout his career, Jerry divided his time between recording and touring with Gabriel and also worked with countless others, which his resume is absolutely ridiculous. Um, Some of the names, pardon me, on that resume include Daryl Hall and John Oates, Tears for Fears, Paul McCartney, Sarah McLaughlin, John Mayer, Indigo Girls, Elvis Costello, 10,000 Maniacs, Sheryl Crow, and many, many more. In 1986, Jerry started his own band, Island of Men. He then moved from New York City to Woodstock, New York, where he put together a studio, Jerrysville Studios, and began producing records for his band and others. His passion as both a musician and producer carry on to this day. Welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Jerry Murata. Well, thank you. Glad you're here, Jerry. I want to start this thing out talking about some specific things that I, as a drummer, was influenced by. And it's not the stuff that everybody knows, the Peter Gabriel things and things like that. Those those are fantastic. You played on that first Mark Cohen record, which is a classic. Elvis Costello, Spike. Friend of mine, Marshall Crenshaw, the downtown record. That's you on that. Very close friend, Carlene Carter. You played on her record, Two Sides to Every Woman. And my buddy, John Sebastian, who just played on my last record, Songs from Isolation, uh-huh. you played on a cut or two on the Tar Beach record. And then I think that uh, Chasing Gus Ghost, you're on that one, too, I believe. I don't know. John and I have done, we've done so many different things together. I graduated college in 82, and you played on a record in 83 that is still one of my favorite records of all time. And not that many people have ever heard it. T-Bone Burnett's Proof Through the Night record. And man... The very first tune that Mick Ronson's playing that crazy guitar stuff on, The Murder Weapon. A killer Tom groove, a masterpiece of, of starkness you. and tension, the way that thing builds. Just fantastic. I listened to it two or three times. I hadn't heard it for a long time because it never came out on CD that I knew, but it is now. It's on Apple Music. So I forgot that I even played on that. Dude, well, you need to go back and listen to yourself. I think I, played on, I may have played on two of his records. You, well, I'm not sure, but you're on most of the tunes on this, and also Fatally Beautiful, which had Townsend on it. 
That's got another one of those sparse kind of grooves you're known for. But anyway, I feel that's essential listening for folks out there, drummers that want to hear something different, unusual, not your normal way you might approach a song. You need to check out both of those tunes. They're fantastic. They were very inspirational to me. I stole those licks off the murder weapon, by the way. I'm used on many records. So if you hear some dude copying your stuff, man, that was me. But uh, anyway, thank you for that. I learned a lot when I was I was when I was transcribing all kinds of stuff and you were kind of the the rock dude that I was listening to. What was the track you just mentioned? The murder weapon. It was yeah. the main one. And I listened to it again, and there was something you were doing that I'd never caught because I got more low-end in my studio with my sub. There's a different foot thing you were doing that I just figured out yesterday, and I went, damn, I never got that right. But now I will. T-Bone is an interesting guy. Mm -hmm. I, back then, he actually was, well, they were his records, so he had to be there. Right. But I, that Elvis Costello record, I think he was producing it when I got to the studio. Well, I think it was Ocean Way. And he said, hey, Murata, you know. Elvis really doesn't want you. Uh, he's not, doesn't really want you to play on the record. But I, but I told him. Uh, I said, look, Jerry's Murata's awesome. Just blah 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 blah. He said, look, just go in there and like just listen to Elvis and blah blah blah. You know, like it was really funny. And then he left to produce another record. Wow. A T he was producing T Bone Walker, two records at the same time. Okay. And he's famous for saying, I've read it in, in, a, in an interview. He said, well, you know, when I'm, I, when I'm producing a record, I just get the right people together in the room. And he said, you know what? If I hang around, I'll just fuck it up. <laughs> and so I get, the, I get a bunch of the right people. Now, yeah. let me just finish the story with Elvis. Elvis, of course, now I'm going in there and I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know what. I'm a little bit shy. Yeah, sure. I go in and play to do the first song and it was overdubbing. They had the whole record done, except that they didn't have any drums. So uh, I went in and I did the first song and I banged out the first song. You know, I did when I played it, I did the first song in the control room. He was like, that's great. Let's move on to the next song. Go to the next song. The second song. He goes, he plays the song for me. I said to him, what, you know, as you would, as you would do. I said, what do you think? I mean, do you have any ideas? I mean, how do you want me to approach this? And he said, and he said to me, I am not capable of telling you what to play. Mm. Like it was just one, the first song. And as it turns out, I think he might've confused me maybe with my brother. Rick. Yeah. And he thought like I was a session drummer, like I was a guy and that I couldn't be any further away from a, a session drummer. Yeah. I'm not a session drummer. I, he, he thought maybe I was a guy, just a session guy. You know, he doesn't like those guys. He doesn't like those guys. Um, and and he learned quickly that I don't play like, you, you know, from hearing kind of the stuff that I would do. I don't play like a session drummer, like what's the appropriate thing to play on this, you know? Right. I just listen to it and play what I feel like playing, you know? Yeah. And the other interesting thing about that Spike record was I, I did the McCartney record in the same year. I'm working with McCartney and it was Eric Stewart from 10 CC. Yeah. Me all just the three of us. We were tracking at his place in, in England, in Sussex. So he's Paul's telling, 
talking about, he's great. He just talks, tells stories. He's great. But he was talking about how they were, um, they had been trying to get him and Elvis together to write together. And it, it makes total sense. Yeah, sure. Elvis is kind of has that Lennon kind of edge. Yeah. Cheeky edginess to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what came of that. And then when I, when I, when I got with Elvis and they got past the first song and he knew that he liked me, he was, he accepted me. Yeah. yeah. Then I said to him, Hey, I done this record with, um, with Paul McCartney. And I, I think you may or may not know Paul ended up co-writing Veronica and some other songs on that record. I asked him about it and he said, you know, my manager, they, the people were trying to get me together with Paul. They were, you know, they were right with him. He said, he said, I don't co-write. I don't co-write with anybody. I, I just write my songs myself. I'm not, I'm not a co-writer. And, uh, but he said, this is between us, us and everybody on your podcast. <laughs> he said, he said, Jerry, I decided I, I handed him a couple songs that had been kicking around for a while and I'd never really been a, able to finish. Mm. So I figured, let me give him those and see what he comes up with. He said, I didn't have any expectations, a lot of respect for Paul, but I, I didn't know what he was going to do. And then he worked on the first song and sent it back to me. And he said, I, I thought he was, it was great what he did. Great. So then that's how that all came about. And they ended up writing a bunch of songs. They wrote three or four songs on the Flowers in the Dirt record for Paul, which came uh-huh. out the same year Spike did. And then a, f- oh, wow. a few more songs dribbled out on, uh, I believe it was called Off the Ground. It came out about three years later. But yeah, there were there was, a I would say, eight or nine great songs came from that. How was it working? And I, I don't mean the oh my gosh part of being in the room with a Beatle, which is in itself pretty cool. But how, how was it working with Paul? I've always had the feeling from things I've heard and just how he approaches music that he's pretty clear on what he wants. Was he pretty open to the room just working out the arrangements? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we did. Cool, man. He didn't dictate anything. And Hugh Padgham produced the record and engineered it. Right. Yeah. Padgham was how I got involved. He brought me in. Mm -hmm. And so it was Eric and Paul had been writing together quite a bit. So, we, you know, we started out the record, just the three of us. Nice. Yeah. It's funny because as much as I'm not a session drummer, um, we started the first day and we started playing this song and it was good. You know, it doesn't take me that long to come up with a drum part. It doesn't take that long. So we're playing. Paul was playing either piano or guitar. Eric was playing piano or guitar, no bass player. So we go through the first day and I'm talking like school hours. He, his kids were all living at home. They were young. Yeah. So we're working from like 10 to four, you know, we're like, you know what I mean? And with, with plenty of breaks, tea, whatever, um, chit chatting. So um, the next day we come in and we play that same song again, pretty much about halfway into the day. I said to him, listen, if I'm not doing, if I'm not getting it done, if you're not happy with what I'm doing, I, I, I look, you, you could, I'd rather you just bring in another drummer, you know, don't feel obligated to, to have me here. And he said to me, Oh no, no, no. He said, Jerry, I'm not even listening for a take. 
Like I'm not listening for a take. Uh, I, I'm just having fun playing. That's all. And that's cool. Every song took three days. It was just three days. Yeah, man. You're playing with Paul McCartney. Come on now. Yeah. What year was that? Late 80s sometime? Or Actually, I know because I got the CD, but yeah, Press to Play. It came out in 86. It might have been 85. Three tracks that every drummer needs to hear from that record. Stranglehold, the first tune, The Shuffle, where you do that broken up stuff. Yeah. Good Time's Coming. It's like a halftime thing that really keeps the song moving that you do. But the coolest thing is Move Over Busker. Go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it for a while and give yourself a round of applause. It's the slickest drum intro pattern that I can think of off the top of my head. And then it goes into straight rock. It's really a straight rocker, but you did its thing at the beginning. It's just fabulous. Every drummer needs to check it out. Move over, Busker. Paul McCartney, press to play. I just want to tell you one thing, which is really funny. I'm sorry. You know, every third, fourth day, he would come in and play the next song, the song we're going to do. One day, and please, Dane, forgive me. One day he comes in and he's playing this song and it's called Move Over Busker. So he plays the song and I said to him, come on, play the real song. Play the right, play the song, play the, <laughs> play the right song. He goes, no, this is the song. I said, come on, you're, stop goofing around. Come on, play the, play the song, play the, 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 real, the song we're going to do. He goes, Jerry. This is the song we're going. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I just thought, Uh-oh. this isn't long and winding road. This isn't, you know, this is, but, but thank you. I'm so glad that you, I, I, I you know what? I, I have to go back and listen to it. I don't think, I, I just thought he was said like, move over. Bang. You know, and it's like, I'm like, Oh my God. It's, it's, he's singing Move Over Bus. I don't even know what to make of this. Come on, Paul. And <laughs> and I'm glad that it turned out good. Yeah, it's I a really straightforward am. rock tune. But I haven't, I haven't listened to it. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I ever listened yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, you should. But it's Paul McCartney. So yeah. it, may have, it, may, it may be why I'm not still playing with him to this day. <laughs> because play the real song. Come on, Paul. Play the real song, man. What is this? That's <laughs> yeah, a classic. That, that and one, one, one time when I got his plate in his face like this. Oh. What did you say? Like he, I thought I heard this. I got this. You know, I'm Italian. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I can get pretty hot. You got in Paul McCartney's face. We got to hear a little more about this. Oh yeah. No, I got in his face. No. And he's like, oh no, I didn't. I you know, I, I, no, that's not what I said. Oh, I you thought you heard something that he didn't say. Yeah. Oh, I got you. <laughs> but anyway, Paul was, uh, was wonderful, easy, great guy. Worked, um, oh, I'm, again, I'm sorry. But so we had dinner one night when we were having dinner at his house. You know, he used to say things like, this one goes to 11. And uh, some other thing. From Spinal Tap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Right. But you know what? I actually, it, it became clear, he never saw Spinal Tap. Yeah. Mm. He just knew some of the phrases. So on the weekend I had off, I went to London and I bought the VHS tape of Spinal Tap and I, and I brought it back and I gave it to him as a gift. And we, we had dinner at his house one night and then he and Linda kind of like snuggles up on the couch, which I think they do a lot. There, 
you know, the, we're like in the living room. I'm sprawled out, stretched out in front of the television. They're behind me, you know, like, like I'm on a pillow on the floor. So here's the thing. It's Spinal Tap. We're laughing. We're blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, the, the scene where Michael McKeon's girlfriend is on stage with a tambourine oh. and, and um, Christopher Guest quit the band. And I, I was afraid to look back oh. uh, because I was like, oh, that's Linda McCartney. That's, uh, I mean, I may be I'm fired. Art, I may be fired now. Art I'm, imitates I'm, life right there, right during that. I'm like, okay, I'm fired. And but you know, it's Paul and Linda. They're so big. I mean, they're so famous, you know. And he, they didn't care. They thought it was funny. Yeah, I bet they but, did. But it was or the, the blonde. She looked like Linda. But I thought, oh, is this? It never occurred to me. I thought she's Linda. She broke up the Beatles. Like it was, even though Linda didn't break up the Beatles, I was like, right. Hey. That's the best final story I've ever heard. It's a good, yeah. I love it that he was quoting it before he'd actually heard it just from other people. Yeah. He was very gracious. You know, he took me into his, his man cave. And of course there's like Magritte's on the wall and there's, you know, like he's got a decooning. He's got wow. a decooning on the floor and he said, oh, yeah, you know, Willem, we're, we're neighbors out on Long Island in the in the Hamptons. We're neighbors, and we used to come over. He'd come over. I'd go to his studio, blah, 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 back and forth. And I think he said, I mean, it might have been his birthday or something. And and de Kooning said, hey, I want to give you a painting for your wow. birthday. And he's like, so he's, he's got a de Kooning, you know. Nice. He's got a bunch, a bunch of Magritte's. And, um, he didn't have the apple, did he? The Magritte, the no, the green no apple, right? No, where they got the idea. You know what he did have? He said, "I was looking at his on a mantle or a shelf, and he has an Academy Award." And I said, "Wow, you, you have a Academy Award?" He said, "Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't know that I that I have that, and it was for Live and Let Die." Oh yeah, yeah. I guess the James Bond. Movie. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. That's right. He got an Academy Award for that. But so th there were ten songs on that record. You were probably there for a month then. If you worked on every song for three days or something close to that. Yeah, I was. I was there. We were there. And, you know, we worked on the weekends. And if it was what they call a bank holiday, um, the, the school was off. We, we didn't work but on, on a Monday. Yeah. We, if it was anything where the kids were off of school, we just didn't work. That's cool, man. Even Heather was there, who was oh. Linda's daughter from another marriage or something. R like, right. She was actually the oldest. Then it was like Mary, Stella, and James. James was probably about nine. Okay. Stella might have been thir 12 or 13. Mary might have been 15 or 16, something like that. Wow. Right. That's, That's awesome, and man. They were great. And by the way, Linda and I grew up very near one another. So she loved me. It was like, I, it was like, you know, it was almost like I was from the old neighborhood, you know, in Westchester, in the suburb, suburbs of New York. We, we grew up very near one another. Well, speaking of that, how did you get into this whole music business to start with? That's easy. My brother, my older brother is a drummer. Yep. I'm very aware of Rick. Right, Rick. So he's about eight years older than me. So I'm 10. He's 18. He's in college. He had a friend get drafted, went to Vietnam, who was a drummer. And my brother uh, convinced him to leave his drums with us, with him, my, with my brother. So he set him up in the attic of my parent, our parents' house. 
and just started bang, banging around on them. And um, we just started, he started playing and I'm like 10, you know, I'm, I'm like a little parrot. I'm listening to him bang around and he's just playing to records. <clears throat> and then, so he'd put on, I, he would leave and then I'd go put on a record and I would try to imitate him. Um, and, and, uh, the funny thing is, I don't know if you guys, if Dane, you probably, you might know Andy Newmark is a drummer. Well, I know well. Andy. I've, I've hung with Andy many times. Yep. He's a great guy. He grew up like uh, two towns over from us. Oh, wow. And, Andy was probably like 16, 17 years old. He would come over sometimes and he'd give my brother pointers. He would give my brother um, lessons. Awesome. And Andy was studying and trying to play like Tony Williams. Sure. And, you know, and my brother, he's teaching my brother. My brother was just trying to groove and have fun and play along the music. And my brother became, he started to become in New York work he was working more than him you know because people hire you to play on a session they don't want tony williams right you know, they want they want they want bernard Purdy. they right. want simple lay it down they want hell yeah they don't want him. so i'm playing and i'm getting better and better as a kid and um my brother did a record with a band called arthur hurley and gottlieb they were on columbia records this is like 1972 73 so I'm a, I, I'm a junior in high school. I'm in 11th grade. I go to summer school to graduate a year early. A week before summer school is over, my, those guys, I'm like 16. My brother, they asked my brother if he would go on tour with them. They had a top 40 single. They were like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Okay. You know, they're just like the three guys singing violin, guitar, piano. And, and awesome. And he, he said, well, he couldn't, he wasn't going to do it, but he said, well, my, my little brother would be perfect. So I went and played with them. I, I, I will learn, I listened to the record. I they said, you're hired. You're the guy. Only one problem. School, not done yet. <laughs> summer school. So, <laughs> and the tour was going to start a week before school, the summer school ended. Oh. So I went to my teachers. There were two classes. I went and believe me, you didn't have to be smart to do this. I went to my teachers. I explained the situation with to them, and they gave me my final exams, and I took them on tour with me. So I took my final exams from high school in the summer of 11th grade on tour with me, and that's how I finished school. Wow. And what do you make of the whole Yacht Rock thing, how that's just like taken a life of its own in the last few years? I love that. Obviously, they're great songs, but it's just kind of become this thing. I mean, I don't know anything about it, but I know I love, you know, I love love is the answer. You know, uh, England, Dan and John Ford. I love I love uh, baby comeback. I, I mean, I just I, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm 65 years old and I grew up in the 60s. It was Motown and it wasn't Beatles. I didn't care about the Beatles. It was bad to be black. You know, the, the Motown, Detroit. Of Philly, you know, the, then the Spinners came along, and then Stax, Otis Redding, you know, uh, Sam and Dave, Carla, Tom, you know, but that's when I was like 10, 12, 14. You know, that was, I was immersed in that. What was your brother playing to that kind of drew you into drumming? Was he also into the same kind of music? Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was Motown. Motown, because, you know, that was... I can hear that, yeah. That was just us, you know, just throwing down a beat like a, like a, like a loop, you know? Yep. You don't get wild. You just throw it down and play a groove and make it right. feel good and pocket. And, and um, you know, that's, that's, that's what I listen to. That's, you know, right. that's how I learned to play the drums. Well, it's been interesting to watch those songs just kind of, you know, have a new life of their own, you know? In the 70s, I've started to kind of transition into, you know, Steve Winwood, you know, white guys that were soulful but still rocking, and then, mm -hmm. like, Hall of Notes, that rock and soul, you know, right. Rundgren, Blue Eyed Soul, you know? Right. Yep. Rock oh, yeah. and soul. Um, so I got, I was deep into that and that, that, and then, and then, look, I'm I'm a self-taught drummer. I mean, I I love music. I'm drums are just my way of being able to make music with other people. But but uh, but I love great songs and great songwriting. I mean, I um even sometimes when it's you know cheesy, you know, right. and yeah. I don't say that yacht rock is cheesy, but you know, Loggins in Messina, you know. Christopher Cross. Feel good music. Yeah, and, and like uh, Dan Fogelberg. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm sorry, I could rattle them that go down. There's just so many. There really is, yeah. I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm 65. Now, back then, radio was top 40 radio. It was AM top 40. There were 10. See that? 10. That's I'm holding up 10 fingers, people. There's 10. And so the top 10 songs in the country would be Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, um, Engelbert Humperdinck, Paul yeah. Moriart, Love is Blue, Blue, uh, blah, blah, like the, from, a, from a film soundtrack. Right. Al Hurt. Yep. Basically, you were subjected to all of that music. And I don't mean to sound like an old fogey, but kids now, you know, everything is so compartmentalized. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, I had to hear Mandy. I had to hear when will I see you? Where will like I? You know, we had to or or Peggy Lee, Barbara Streisand. You know, memories like the corner. Like we, you were. We, it was instilled in us you know, all different kinds of music. That's right. 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 That's just interesting. I'm I'm glad to see those great songs still living on some way. I'm, I'm glad to see them kind of revived for a whole new generation. Because I'll tell you, I work on a lot of those shows, whether it's a Yacht Rock tribute band or if it's the band themselves. And people show up wearing their captain's hats. And, and most of the people that show up, they're young people. It's it's people in their 20s, you know, and in their 30s. It's not just the old crew. It's uh, it's kind of interesting to watch, to be quite honest with you. And, and the reality is, is great songs doesn't really matter if the song is great as long as it has a platform uh it can live on so it's kind of neat to see it actually yeah i mean i don't know it's just quality music will live on i, I think so it, it'll it'll find its way to well it endures even good music endures quietly even if it isn't in the particular pigeonhole at the time or now as it's research resurfacing it's just it, it just can't go away because it's too good to vanish too right. too good to and we're talking yeah. to a guy here who's played on <laughs> gosh one of the largest collection of uh, artists of quality that i've ever seen i kept scrolling down today and, and uh, i mean i i knew of quite a few of your your encounters but it's like who is not on this list was really how i, I was struck no question your new band this bucket list record too by the way wow i mean phil keggy 
I live about five minutes from Alexandria, Indiana, which is kind of a Christian music mecca in this country. And a lot of, you know, Dan Huff got started there. He's a big producer in Nashville now. And tons of people have come through this place. And Phil Keggy, I discovered him when I started doing that work probably 40 years ago when I was in college. I had not heard of him. And then I heard those glass harp records. And then I heard his early work. And I just, and the fact that Hendrix said, hey, People go, what's it like to be the greatest guitar player? I don't know. Ask Phil Kagi. You know, he (laughs) invented that volume thing. He was the first guy to do several things. And anyway, I've always been a huge fan of his. And I actually had a friend who's passed away now who who toured with him quite a bit and played harp guitar and stuff. But anyway, uh, the fact that you and Tony Levin and him have a trio, which is a fabulous record, by the way. I don't want to call it fusion. I want to call it instrumental music for... I I don't know exactly. I don't want to put a genre on it, but I sure enjoyed listening to it, man. It's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Phil really had a lot to do with how that turned out. We actually got together because we all, the three of us, Tony's one of my closest friends, but, and I know Phil, but we, we have a mutual friend. It's his bucket list was his bucket list that the three of us would get together. Oh, interesting. Uh, Interesting. Cool. About 12 years before that record came out, we got together here at my house in my studio here, and um, we just jammed for three days. And it sat for about eight or nine years. It just sat there. No, we were Everybody's busy or whatever. And finally, Phil somehow decided maybe he had he was at a loose end or something. He wasn't super busy. He just decided he's going to start opening stuff up and see what he could come up with. And then he'd send it back to, they'd send him me and the Tony go around, but I did very little. I, I changed very little. I don't think Tony changed very much either. Yeah. And the record turned out great. Man, it's fabulous. So did you first meet Tony Levin back in when you were recording the first Peter Gabriel record? Or did you guys know each other previously? I knew Tony before that. Okay. But I don't think we had ever played together. When I started playing with Peter was in 77. He, you know, his first solo record came out. Back then, people did things called promotional tours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the record company would pay for that. So he got pretty much the guys that were on the record. Steve Hunter, Phil Auberg, Larry Fast, Tony. Yeah. Jimmy Malin, Alan Schwartzberg. Mm. He, uh, Robert Fripp, uh, he, they basically got that band and they, they did like a pr- promo tour, like, you know, L.A., New York, Boston, Detroit, you know, like the big, big areas. And then um, and then when that the, then those guys all want to go back to being session players, you know. And yeah. And so he needed a, dr- a drummer and a guitar player that Tony stayed on and Larry Fast stayed on. So they needed. He needed a drummer, and he needed a, um, and a guitar player. Who called you in? I have no idea. Oh, really? It's a gray area. I don't remember. I got somebody gave me a cassette tape, and it was that cassette tape of that of his first solo record. Yeah. And so I put the record on, and I started listening to it. And let me tell you one thing about that first record, and that that the generally what was coming. To, to a large degree, that could be perceived of as proggy, but nothing, nothing funky about it. Yeah, yeah. 
Very English, yes. Very English, very like more ethnic, classical, medieval, yeah. more of those influences. Yeah. So I listen to this thing and I'm, th I'm listening to Moribund the Burgermeister. You know, I don't know what the other, some of the other ones were. A month earlier, I had been in Orleans up until the lead guy, John Hall, quit the band. Yeah. That's what happened. He quit. And I was heartbroken because Orleans happened to be, when I auditioned to the, with them, that they were my favorite band on the planet. I don't know if any of you guys have heard that first record. I have. They did it in Muscle Shoals with Roger. Yeah. Roger Hawkins. And yeah. Barry Beckett produced it. Mm. And I mean, every song on it is a guitar riff based yeah. riff. Like John Hall wrote Half Moon, which was a B-side for um, Jan Janis Joplin. Oh, geez. yeah. Okay. Yeah. She recorded one of John's, uh, John's songs, John and Johanna. It was called Half Moon. <laughs> it was a B-side that got flipped and then it became a hit. Okay. But, you know, every, every, all the songs on that first Orleans record were like clean up woman kind of guitar riffs, funky. So, um, but anyway, that's where I was coming from. Doobie Brothers, Soul, right. Doobie Brothers, Little Feet, you know, soul, yeah. funky, badass. Well, there couldn't be anything further away from that than that first Gabriel stuff, right? Yeah. Totally. But you know what? My band broke up. I was, uh, you know, we broke up and I didn't know what to do. I went out to LA to hang out with my brother for like a few weeks or something. And that, I got that tape. I listened to it. I'm like, I don't know. This is the weirdest shit I think I've ever heard. I didn't know who Peter Gabriel was. <laughs> and I didn't know who Genesis was. I didn't. Right. Oh, wow. I mean, I knew who they were, but I, I wasn't listening to them. Right. And, uh, and I thought, okay, it's it's like it starts in August or September. It's in England. Okay, I've never been there. It's a job. Okay, that's good. It <laughs> pays well. It pays pretty well. So, um, I mean, what do I have to lose? Um, it was a challenge. So I just right. I just decided I would do it. So I did it. I'm a huge fan of all of those all of those records that came out, and I, you know, it's hard to talk about them because they all are called Peter Gabriel. You got to kind of have to go by the you know, scratch or what you know, call them, call them the names they've become. Yeah. That, and that one's probably my personal favorite. I mean, those songs on the air and mother of violence and DIY and yeah. Animal, yeah. All those are just, can you talk about making that second record a little bit? I mean, what that experience was like is kind of what I, when I'm hearing from you, like you didn't know what you were getting into and what was that second record? Like that was the one that Robert Fripp produced with that's the scratch one. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, that was awesome. Yeah. You know, I didn't know who Robert Fripp was. Oh, wow. But, I, you know, guys had been talking about this guy, Robert Fripp, and what a strange character. And, oh, you know, boy, you got to be really careful and don't, you know, don't speak to him. Don't look up at him. Don't make eye contact. You know, there was all kinds of folklore about, about Robert Fripp, right? So I didn't know who he was. So we go to, Holland to start recording that first that that record the, the the session started in Holland at a residential studio and so I get there and there's Robert I meet him I don't know I don't know what to think I, you know I'm wondering what you know what kind of guy he is that quirky strange 
you know, um, and uh, I got the the first night we were there early with our tour manager who was a good friend of mine. The the three of us went out to a club in out in in, in Holland. Not it wasn't in Amsterdam. It was in the countryside. So we went out to a rock club and there was a band playing called I have all their records. They were called Vitesse, Vitesse. And I didn't know who they were, but we went there and it was this club and it was jam packed full of people. And it was one of those two guitars, bass and drums bands. And the drummer was the leader of the band. And every song they played was fast, but not punk fast, like fucking badass, groovy pocket, you know, super, you know, ripping it up. And I was shocked. I was shocked. So they take a break and a guy comes, a guy comes and he finds us and he goes, Oh, uh, Mr. Fripp, the band wanted to know, um, wanted to see, wanted to see if you would, would sit in, would you like to sit in and play guitar with the band? Come get up and play a song with them. So, you know, he was like, Oh, you know, thank you very much. So meanwhile, I, this is the first day I met him. Oh, thank you very much. That's great. I'm sorry, you know, no, thank you. Just please apologize, but I don't do that. That guy walks away. Robert then turns to Richard, our road manager. I mean, he goes, on a, <laughs> he says, on a bad night, either one of those guitar players could wipe the floor with me. Like, wow. <laughs> they, they could mop the floor with me on yeah. a bad night. And, you know, it was kind of, not true, really, but so what they were doing, yeah. these two guys were just huh. incredible at what they did. Yeah. Fast, but not so fast that it didn't groove. But then they'd solo, and then one would solo, then the other one would solo, and they would always outdo each other. And then the one would solo, and the other one would outdo him. You know, but it was just a whole night of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, great band. And so... So the next day we go in the studio. It's our first day in the studio. We, we, we get through the day and that, and then we're done. And Robert comes up to me and he goes, and he's very straight face. He goes, would, uh, would you please stay after the session? I'd like you to stay after the session. We need to talk. Um, yeah. I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm fine. I'm out of here. So everybody leaves. I go into the control room and the engineer is, he's got these two Revox tape machines set up and he's got a tape coming from the one going across the, 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 um, the countertop, whatever. And then, and then it's the take up reel on the, on the other one, you know, Frippertronics. So he says to me, Oh, he's got a guitar. And he goes, Oh, s- sit down. I sit down and he proceeds to do like a Frippertronics thing. For like, I don't know, 25 minutes or something. You know, he's doing that thing, that looping thing. Right. Uh, well, for Patronix then. And, and then uh, afterwards, he's like, oh, you know, okay, thanks, Jerry. Awesome. Great, great job. We'll see you tomorrow. I'll, you know, we'll see you tomorrow. And I just think it was his way of saying, I like you. Yeah. Okay. Hang out and watch yeah. me do my thing here. Yeah. I like you. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to share with you. Like, because he didn't do that in front of a lot of people, you know, he's yeah. a, a private guy. And I, I think he just figured 
I'll share that with you. And that that's my way of showing you that like, uh, you're that I like you. That's cool. You know, and then that's I, awesome. I ended up playing on his, on one of his records. And then we did a bunch of other things together. Right. Um, after that, you know, I, I played on, uh, the, his, it's the record exposure, I think it's called. Oh yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And we did that. We were at the townhouse in London and I remember I went to the studio and we get in there and at this, at this point I know him. So I know I'm comfortable. And he goes, go in there and play any beat you want, any beat you want, anything, just play anything. And, uh, I don't know whether he had already recorded the Fripper, the thing, Frippertronics thing, or if he was going to do one as we were playing. Just, things kicks in, and I just started playing, you know, my, you know, a simple, certainly not progressive, not busy, you know, I don't, you know, not not anything busy or you know, complicated, very simple. And uh, I think he really liked that. He liked that. I think Peter liked that. Having played with Phil, you know, and the, the the Genesis, and you know that that kind of music, and the busier playing, I think he really liked the simplicity, simple drums, simple play. Yeah, well, Jerry, we we, we always like to talk about uh, record covers and artwork as part of the podcast, particularly with Hugh on here. But I'm going to turn it over to Hugh for a little bit just to talk about artwork, if you don't mind, for a second. I'm almost hesitant to delve into something as as mundane as as cover art and packaging when it comes to a musician like you, Jerry, because I, I know you're very much about the music, but I suppose it's interesting. And, and, and I'm always interested to know how important artwork and album covers have been to you through the years as a consumer, as someone who watched the development of album covers for, for your own bands. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Okay. I wouldn't have guessed so. I would have thought you'd be just so into the music that, you know, fuck art, let's dance, you know? No, that's the, all a big part of it. Because I have, I, I could flip, I could walk around my room, but I have a, a fairly extensive collection of art yeah. that I've collected from artists that I really like. It's all over the place. A lot of it's on the floor because I don't have enough wall space. But um, no, I think it's very important. Very important. Were you influenced as a consumer in stores by the way the rack appeal, the shelf appeal of, of a cover, or were you always hearing the music first before you, because I know some people will go to a store and they'll, they'll buy something that they were they're going into to, to buy Springsteen, but then they look over and go, Oh, that's an interesting album. Who, who is this uh, Fleetwood back? They're drawn to another unexpected purchase based on the fact that the cover spoke to them. Did that ever happen to you or? I don't think I ever bought an album because I thought the cover was big, you know, because yeah, yeah. I could appreciate a great looking cover. Yeah. I'd want a little, know a little bit more about it. Yeah. Before I dive in and buy it. But I think the two, the two go hand in hand. So when you're in a band, uh, how involved were you with the label and how much did you discuss the artwork or did that kind of matter? I know you ended up getting interesting covers inclusive of bare chested, photo sessions um well, i had nothing to do with that well i'm just saying but there you are you know um surely the band kind of would have an opportunity to say you really think so okay well you know whatever you think that was like the record company you know norman seif i think was the photographer he was the hot guy then yep and you know that was funny because 
you know, this is four guys basically from upstate New York yeah. in LA and working on a record. None, no one's Hollywood in that band at all. Yeah. And then you go to a photo shoot at Norman Seif's studio and there's like wine and cheese and tequila and girls and um, girls to, you know, dressed in various states of dress or undress. Damn. And, uh, you know, it was that is that whole Hollywood thing that, you know, we didn't we didn't fit in there at all. I worked with Norman's assistant on a couple of projects, uh, Bon Jovi and a couple of others. I, I, he actually worked with me on a Kiss project too. Cameron Wong um, was telling me that you know, despite Norman being a phenomenal photographer, and he was, he he shot everybody uniquely. I mean that that playing possum cover for for Carly was pretty impressive. Oh yeah, I, I know the record you're talking about. Yeah, I'll that's bet you, fantastic. I'll bet, yeah, <laughs> and, and speaking. To Jerry's, you know, that's the first time I heard anyone describe Norman as someone, I, I get the wine and cheese, but girls in various stages of dress and undress speaks even closer to that reality. Um, but did you, I think it's true that he was a psychiatrist in South Africa before he came to LA. And I, I'll bet he brought a lot of those, those heady chops with him in terms of how to, how to work people on camera and how to, you know, deal with people in the photo session. I finished a record with a singer named Sarah Parada and uh, it's a fantastic record. We've been working on it for five years. And I mean, I'm involved in, you know, she's, she, I have a vision as to what, how she should be seen, you know, what her yeah. photo should look like, you know, what she, you know, what, what, what appeal, what, what's appealing. And then, uh, so, um, and she's been very, you know, much wanted to hear my input. And, yeah. Some people really don't have a clue. They're so busy being what they are, which is a musician. It's not always a given that you you know how to present yourself, you know, like the Rihannas and the Beyonce's. And, you know, even Sia with her quirky thing that she does, you know, it's still it's still a contrived decision to say I'm going to be faceless, you know. So to know what to market yourself, how to market yourself, it's, it's, a, it's an important decision. You know, it can't – you can't be – uh, contrivedly naive and just say, well, it's all about the music. Cause unfortunately it's not. Yeah. Right. Sadly it's not. Yeah. Well now more than ever for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if you remember, but I will, I'll tell you an album that I remember, but I'll never forget was it was, um, it was, um, Jethro Tull. Yeah. Do you remember the record stand up? Yeah, man. It's classic. The record. And they stood up. They popped out. I mean, <laughs> yeah. look, you, I know that's not particularly what you're talking about in terms of, you know, what, like what you do, which is so magnificent, but it's pretty fucking clever. That was clever. A damn good record too, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Very good record. I have huge respect for kitsch ideas, you know, um, ingenious ideas like the Beatles daring to be the only band with a white album cover because, you know, cause they can and because they could more than probably any other band could. Um, Especially after the most ridiculously over the top record. And then for the next one to be, well, there's nothing on it at all. Yeah. Here's a, a Suzanne Vega record that I, that I worked on called nine objects of desire. And it's a picture of her holding up a green apple. 
and and it's really basically her head, but it's like the composition, the the color, her red hair, her her partial face. Um, I I always I, I always you know like oftentimes when I'm when I'm doing something and we're like thinking about artwork, you know, well I'll always have that like that's always something I'll I'll bring up, you know, like hey. Like, look at this. What, like, what do you think of this? And it, it's just so simple. It's just a photograph, you know. I'm looking at it now. It's not just a photograph. It's, it's, it's well composed. It's the, the color, her hair, the apple, the, the, you know, like it. There's something about it. It's like, yeah, it is very cool. And of course, I mean, there's just so, there's so many records. I mean, there's so many. But I, I tend to. You know, I'll end up with once I start getting like when I'm listening to the, a record like like um, Electric Ladyland. Yeah. When you listen to the record and then you start looking at that album cover. Yeah. Yeah. Because back then, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but, you know, you put the LP on and then you got this big thing to look at. It's like, you know, and you open it up and you're looking at the credits and you're looking at like everything, the pictures of people and and everything about it. And, you know, I don't know if people do kids do that with CDs. It's just so much, it's much smaller. And, you know, it's not quite as, you know, the canvas is smaller, but you know, people often ask me, did you lament the loss of the 12 inch square? Yes, of course, because you can delve into the imagery and, and with that door closed, the window that opened was the 20 page CD booklet. So it's, you get more surfaces, even though they're smaller, but you get a lot more, room in that gallery to to express yourself and of course vinyl's coming back so you know even though you come through the front door doing a cd it's inevitable that they're going to come to you and want to do the lp and more and more we're doing 12 inch lp books which are the kind of the uh equivalent of the cd booklet but a lot of people that see the cd booklet say oh my god i want to have this big for the lp well depending on how indulgent you are and how invested you are in doing that that's that's another part of the fun I have, you know. Sure, of course. Yeah. Well, Jerry, it's been a pleasure, man. Bunch of great stories. Anybody knows me knows we could be here for five hours and still only scratching the surface of the stories that can be told and then there's the stories that shouldn't be told. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. You got it. See you guys. See you later. See you, bye. Good seeing you, Jerry. Bye. See you. Bye, Jerry. Dream.